Well, it is a joy to stand before you today and open God's Word. Next week, Lord willing, we will return to the book of Romans. Today, I want to continue a series that I've been teaching on, preaching on, entitled Legalism. The series is just on legalism, this idea of adding to God's Word. And last week, we looked at person-to-person legalism. What happens when two Christians are in a relationship together and one is being legalistic to the other? We went through those issues and some examples. And I also talked about how to deal with it in your own heart if you're the legalist. And we looked at what if you're being attacked or targeted by a legalist? How do you biblically respond to that? Again, rules legalism is defined as adding rules that God has neither required nor forbidden in Scripture. And then to look with suspicion on others when they don't live up to your additional rules that you've added to the Bible. A great passage to set the theme, if you would. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is one of the clearest places in Scripture that we see rules, legalism laid out. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. They have all these problems. There's infighting about many things. One is, who's our favorite preacher? We love Apollos. No, we love Paul. And so Paul goes through this example of him and Apollos. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7, he talks about this idea of rules legalism. Verse 5, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Don't go passing judgment on your fellow brother or sister in Christ before the time, before Christ comes back. Wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts. And then each one's praise will come to him from God. So he's saying, don't go judging your brothers and sisters in the church about convictions and preferences and opinions. Maybe you feel like you're making the wise decision of all the wisdom God has given you and study of his word. You're making a wise decision. But don't go around judging others. The Lord will bring all things to light when he returns. Now look at verse 6 though. Now these things, brothers, I have applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So that in us, you may learn not to go beyond what is written. There it is. Rules legalism. Going beyond what is written. So that none of you will become puffed up on behalf of one against the other. The problem with legalism is that you invent rules. You add them to scripture. You expect everyone to live by them. And then you become puffed up. They're not living as godly as I am. And Paul says, don't go beyond. Learn not to go beyond what is written. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? So in today's sermon, I want to now apply that to the church. I've entitled the message, When Legalism Goes to Church. We've looked at this idea of Christians against Christians here with legalism. But we want to now look at what happens whenever the target is the church. How should we think biblically about this issue? And what do we do when people elevate their preferences in a church to the level of doctrine? What do we do when our brother and sister in Christ tells us that their preference is now so important to them that they're willing to divide over it? Tom Rayner, who publishes a blog on his study of churches, he's written many books. He asked Christians on social media to list some of the silliest things churches have fought over. And he picked 25 of them and listed. I've got a few here just to set the the tone for how silly this can actually end up being. And we'll laugh at these 
But then we'll get more serious as we talk about the things that churches fight over. Here's some of the list. An argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Owen, you got some work to do there. A deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and then deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. A church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. I mean, these are real issues that people listed on his social media that he then listed on his blog. A church argument and a vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. We would go a long time if y'all did that. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. A petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. That would be a problem. A dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. No comment on that one. A big, a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was 10 cents off. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. Business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve that. Arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church because of the stronger coffee. Major conflict occurred when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. Some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from the other member. It resulted in a major fight and split. A dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. A fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. An argument on whether the fake dusty plants should be removed from the podium. Now we can laugh at those, but you would be surprised at the things that church leaders hear in the life of the church. This is a serious issue, and I've been warning you these past few weeks about how dangerous legalism is. And rules legalism in the church can literally destroy it from the inside out. That's why R.C. Sproul said it's the most dangerous type of legalism of the four types that I listed a few weeks ago. I was just looking around online at some articles about this, and gotquestions.org has an article about church splits. And they say a church split may happen when someone seeks to manipulate people or events for his own ends. It may be that there is pride in rule keeping. So there it is, rules legalism. And those who do not keep the same rules are ill-treated. It may be that one interpretation of a non-essential and obscure doctrine is emphasized and used as a measure for who is included and who is excluded. It could be that someone wants to wrest leadership from the pastor or elders and rallies a group of people around himself to accomplish that end. Sadly, difference of opinion regarding music and worship style is also a frequent cause of division in the church. The excuses for the conflict are numerous, but they all stem from the same root cause pride, and selfishness. You see, Satan loves to cause problems in a church. He loves to cause division. And if he can't do it through a doctrinal issue, he'll just do it through legalism. Satan would love it if people in the church would add to God's word and then look around at everyone else and judge them for not living up to their standards. John MacArthur, 11 years into being a pastor at Grace Church, had some legalistic elders rise up and try to get him fired. 
11 years in, he had 10,000 people coming to the church. And that happened. You would think that would be rare. Then at the 25-year mark, the same thing happened. And those elders at that time who were legalistic took 200 members with him. It happens in churches. It happens that legalism creeps in. You can have the best doctrine. You can have the best preaching. But legalism is a group issue. We all have to work at it. We all have to work to keep it from growing. In the seven years of this church, a number of people have tried to elevate their preferences to the point of doctrine, tried to gain control of the leadership, and tried to change things in the church in that way. It happens in every church. Now, I'm so thankful that I know of no issue with legalism right now in our church. I'm so happy that I can preach this message at a time like this. But the point is, we have to work at growing in godliness. Not just as individuals, but as a church. Just like if gossip and slander was spreading through the church, you as a fellow member are expected to work at rooting those sins out in your own heart, in your friends' hearts, and in others that you hear from in the church. Really, Satan is very crafty. He loves to use the believer's own pride and self-righteousness to destroy us from the inside. So I want to work through this issue in some detail today. Uh, We're going to have four main points, and I want to work through them and look at, first of all, the cause. Just like we did last week, what's this problem of legalism against the church? Number one, four main areas of legalism against the church. There's four real areas that we see this crop up, not necessarily in this church, but in all churches that are, let's say, conservative evangelical churches. And if it happens there, it can happen here. And so we need to be on guard. Be on guard. Know the schemes of the devil. Know what he's going to try to use to come after you, to come after your church. First of all, facilities and spending. Just on the spending, uh, there are those who might say you must brew coffee and not use Keurig cups because it costs too much. And you heard just from that list that I read, coffee is a big issue. Like I said last week, I don't know how first century churches got through without coffee and the best coffee, which is the Ethiopian coffee. I mean, that's my favorite. And we don't even have that here, but that's okay. We must save money on coffee cups. We must not get uh, the nice ones that keep you from being burned. Let's get the cheapest ones. It's the Lord's money after all. And so let's not waste it facilities. Some would say we don't even need an air conditioner. And I've heard this argument. We don't even need a building with an air conditioner because after all, the first century church did not have an air conditioner. And all of you should say amen to the air conditioner as we live in Texas. But again, is that really an issue that a church or a member should get upset about? Some would say to fix your church building up means that you've lost your love for Christ. If you're just making it look nice, you've, you've gone too much into things of the world. Others might say, I think we should use the building to do anything that members want to have. If there's something that a member might want to put on, some members in churches would say the building should be used for that. Now, the joke used to be that any church would split over the color of the carpet. Many of us have heard that joke, right? Churches split over the color of the carpet. I've used that joke before, and uh, my kids tell me that's just a pastor's joke. Often, we don't believe such a thing could happen. And then I had somebody visiting here a couple of weeks ago and said they were in a church that literally split over the color of a carpet as they argued about what color to install. 
whether it was red, green, or blue. Secondly, worship and music style. This is quite the issue in the evangelical world. Worship and music style. What kind of songs should we sing? Should we have instruments on the stage or not? Should we sing solos or not? Is that giving too much attention to one person? Should there be a choir or not? These are things that churches argue and even can divide over. Should we only have congregational singing? Is it right and okay to have drums? My favorite song should be played. One person said to me early on in our church, I want less hymn singing going on. Let's get right to the preaching. Which, hey, amen for the preaching, but we're going to sing and worship the Lord as well. Also, thirdly, third category, specific ministries and programs. Maybe we can have pet ministries, ministries that we really like, ministries we liked in a previous church, ministries that we really want to happen in our church. Some Christians are convicted that there shouldn't be certain ministries in the church. Sometimes there are Christians convicted that there should be nursery and there ought to be nursery. It's not a true church. Others think there shouldn't be a nursery or it's not a biblical church. The newer thing that I've heard in the last few years, there is a teaching going around that women shouldn't study the Bible verse by verse in women's groups. That women shouldn't get together and just go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. This is not just an opinion, but it gets elevated to the level of doctrine. The fourth issue that churches often can divide over or get upset about and have legalism, leaders. Leaders. Do I like the leaders? Are they my friends? Are they cool? Are they good looking? Do they have hair? Do they, <laughs> do they have a beard like John Knox? I mean, a, a new church planter these days has to have this nice, reformed-looking beard. Why aren't they always doing what my last pastor did? Why are they always checking up on me? Or on the other side of it, why did they not call me after I missed one Sunday? Did they give me all the details in church discipline cases for me to make the decision? They should run things the way I want to do in my business. They should make my friend an elder in the church. You can see how adding rules to Scripture can be applied in these four areas. Even to the sermon itself when it comes to leaders. My wife doesn't feel happy when she leaves the sermon. Sometimes they make her feel guilty. It can be said to the pastor. One time I had a man tell me, don't preach the gospel to believers. That's belittling. They have already heard the gospel. And I thought, what kind of church would we have if we didn't preach the gospel? I mean, that is the message of salvation, and believers need to hear it. Martin Luther said, I preach the gospel every day to you because you forget it every day, he told this church. One person said, the Bible should be taught less here. The Bible should be taught less here. In our world today, we need more Bible teaching. Bible illiteracy is so bad in Christianity. We need more teaching of the Bible, not less. Now, I'm not talking here about general criticism. Every pastor, every elder goes into ministry expecting general criticism. Sometimes that's healthy. Sometimes from a humble, loving servant in the church to come and criticize a leader can be healthy. Sometimes that's needed. Elders hold one another accountable. We criticize one another and hold each other up to a biblical standard. What I'm speaking about here is when people insist that their convictions, their preferences be elevated to the level of doctrine 
in the church. And we could say practice as well. If you believe it to be a doctrinal issue, you want to see that practice as well. It's basically the attitude, if you don't do what I say, I'll take my checkbook and leave. Now, convictions on all these issues I mentioned are perfectly fine. If you like pastors with a John Knox beard and you want to search for a church like that, just to give a silly example, then you're free to do that. But the issue is coming into a church and expecting that church to conform to your man-made rules. And we've all done that to some extent at some point in the past in churches. Well, here is the issue. We cannot add to God's word. He has spoken clearly about these issues. And it just ends up tearing up the church when things like that run amok. James chapter 4 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So those are generally the four areas uh, that I've seen and I think most church leaders uh, would agree with. The four areas that churches can come to disagreements over when it comes to rules, legalism. To help us work through this, though, let's think about, first of all, what is a church? Because if we're going to start evaluating churches based on our thoughts and convictions and preferences, shouldn't we care about the biblical definition of a church? And scripture? Shouldn't we look to scripture and make sure we have the main thing as the main thing? Because whose church is it? Ultimately, whose church is it? It's Christ's church. Colossians 1.18, he is also the head of the body, the church. For the husband is head of the wife, Ephesians 5.23, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So let's look at number two, the biblical definition of the church. And if you're visiting here today, this is key right here. You're looking for a church that matches what the Bible has to say about a church. Whether they dress the way that you want them to dress, whether they have the color of carpet that you might prefer, that's not important compared to what the Bible has to say about a church. It's his church. And did Jesus really leave us in the dark? Did Jesus leave us in the dark when it comes to a church? Or did he tell us exactly what the church should be and what the church should do? Well, he told us. He told us who we are as a church, and he describes it clearly in the New Testament. So what are the essentials of a church? What are they? Well, I'm going to give you the marks of a true church. These are the things that, that make up a true church according to Scripture. Without these, you might have a Christian group, you might have a parachurch organization, but you don't have what's called a biblical church. First of all, the first mark of a true church is that you have a group of spirit-indwelled believers. This is kind of obvious. This is sort of something we would expect. But at the same time, we know there can be churches that have as members many unbelievers. What does it mean to be a spirit-indwelled believer? It means what the Bible calls a saint somebody who is being sanctified and has been declared holy through Christ. Believers, people who trust in Christ, we use the term disciples, following Christ, learning from Christ. We use the term Christian. You see that twice in the Bible, in Acts and in 1 Peter 4. Little Christ, not the way the false teachers call that, but people who are following Christ, disciples of Christ. 
They're trying to look like Christ in the way they live. That's a Christian. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, he pulls from the Old Testament and he says, you, talking about the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Unbelievers can come and visit. Unbelievers can come to our service and hear the gospel and hear the word preached and see Christians and talk to Christians. But the church is made up of believers. And if you're out looking for a church and you suddenly find a group of people who say they're Christians, but they don't believe the Bible and they don't practice any of the faith, then that's not a true church. Secondly, we're going to go through these pretty briefly because I've taught on these elsewhere. But secondly, uh, those who meet regularly in one locality. Now, used to, this was obvious. You go together, you meet together, and you are a group of believers. Often you covenant with one another. You make promises to fulfill the one another's in Scripture. The church, though, has to meet regularly for the purpose of worship, for edification, for serving one another. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we have to spend some more time on this because of our modern age where many people will say, we are the church. I don't belong to a church. I don't care about the church. I, myself, are part of the church at home by myself. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. Listen to how Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. He's just giving commands here about the Lord's Supper. And he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church. When you come together as a church. The church is not a building. And we've heard that over and over. And that's true. The church itself is not a building. But they meet somewhere. And usually, that's a building. It's nice not to have rain on your head. It's nice not to have snow on your head if you live in cold places. It's nice not to have a tornado cross over you and take everybody to heaven instantly. He says, when you come together as a church. And now he's hearing about these divisions that I already mentioned to you in Corinth. I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So he's dealing with the factions there. He's saying this is all part of God's plan. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And he goes on to exhort them how they're, they're just coming together to throw a big party and they're not actually caring about the Lord's Supper. But notice how many times, and we could go on through this book of 1 Corinthians, how many times he says meeting together. The church meets together. The church meets together. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking. Forsaking means setting aside, running away from, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. God has a purpose. He's put you here to encourage one another, to build up one another. Not to tear down, not to have factions, but to encourage one another until Christ returns. And when we forsake the assembly, when we're not part of the church, when we don't even attend together regularly, we are forsaking the assembly. And we have to say this in today's world because there's so many what's called online churches. You go to online church. Now, sometimes you're moving, sometimes you're away on vacation and you watch something online. You watch a sermon. But realize, just watching that sermon online does not make you automatically a part of that church. 
always love it when pastors say, and sometimes they put this on the front of their, their sermon clips online, this is not your local church if you're listening and you're not a member here. This is not your local church, they'll say. Find a good local church and be part of it. Praise the Lord there's good resources online. Praise the Lord that during the week we can listen to sermons. But it doesn't take the place of a real local church. There's even places doing online baptisms now where you just sort of go to the bathroom and you give yourself a baptism. It's not in the Bible. That's not a biblical model of the church. Thirdly, the word is purely preached. And we could add taught to that. The word must be purely preached. A true church means that the word of God is preached. And it's done so rightly. It's not twisted. It's not twisted to get all this money coming into the prosperity church. It's not twisted for the leader's own desires. It's purely preached. Go to Romans 10. Romans 10, Paul talks about preaching of the word. It's necessary. It's necessary. You have to have this in a church or it's not a church. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So how does an unbeliever call upon the Lord Jesus if they haven't believed in him? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How do they believe in Christ? And how do they hear the, uh, how do they uh, believe in the good news of Jesus Christ to save them if they haven't heard the gospel? Look at his line of thinking here. And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. Verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. And then he quotes Isaiah here. And if you skip down to verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You've got to have the word preached. You've got to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. That's his mission. That's what the missionaries with Paul were going out to do. The word must be preached. The gospel must be preached. The fact that salvation is a free gift of God to unworthy sinners must be preached. The gospel about the person and work of Christ must be preached. It comes from the scriptures. We don't have to make it up. It's right there. We sing, our hope was built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We've sang that many times. That comes from the word being preached. Maybe you didn't hear a sermon when you were saved, but you read the Bible. There are different ways people get to scripture. But Paul says the word must be preached. Also in Titus 1.9, not only do we have pure preaching of the gospel, but sound doctrine must be there. That's part of the word being purely preached. It must be sound doctrine. Titus 1.9 says that elders must be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. The teaching of the apostles, the teaching of scripture, the teaching of Christ. Why? So that he, the elder, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You want a church with sound doctrine that's being taught and proclaimed from the pulpit, from the lectern in classes. Otherwise, you're just going to be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. You're not hearing strong teaching. You're not hearing any preaching in a church. And you just pick up whatever book you find on the Christian bookshelf in Barnes and & Noble. And you, you don't know what that is. How do you know if that's a good, doctrinally sound book or not? You have no way to evaluate it because you haven't been strengthened and fed by the Word. Also, we need to reach the lost. 
We need to reach the lost. Even though the church service is for building up believers and, and glorifying God, we're also reaching the lost by proclaiming the gospel to them. Someone once said to me early on in our church, a person came up and said, I don't like all these new people coming in lately because you're focusing too much on them and you're spending too much time with them. Now, praise the Lord, that didn't win the elders over because none of you, I don't think, would be here. That was very early in our church and all of you are new compared to that time. Fourthly, where the ordinances are observed. We're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism means to, to immerse, to sink, to plunge. And when you are baptized, you're professing your faith in Christ. You're professing your faith in Christ as you go under the waters and come up. You're showing that you're united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You would think this would be really basic to churches, but I have been a part of churches where I haven't seen a baptism for months, maybe years. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. That's the other ordinance that Christ gave us. A church must partake of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't say how often. It doesn't say exactly how and when to do everything. But it does say a church must take the Lord's Supper. Jesus commanded it. Do this until I return, he said. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ's death for us. We, we proclaim his death until he comes. A church must practice those things. Next, church discipline must be exercised. Some kind of church discipline must be exercised. Christ commands that in Matthew 18. He talks about going to your brother when they've sinned against you. And if they don't repent, you take along uh, one or two witnesses. If they don't repent, then you go and tell the elders who have to sometimes tell the whole church to go and help this person. And then eventually he says, if they will not repent, if it's such a sin, they will not repent of it, cast them out. Treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now that's not popular in today's church, but that's what Christ said. We don't get to change his words. Paul's very harsh with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, which you can read later. He says, how dare you basically not discipline out this person who is living in sin? He is very hard. We must discipline. Why? What is it? Well, it's to correct sin and it's to point the disciple toward the better path of faithfulness to Christ. And corrective discipline, by the way, we're always doing discipline, teaching, training, that's generally discipline. But corrective discipline is the act of, of basically removing a non-repentant individual from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus said that is what a church would do. There's too many churches who sit and the leaders watch all of the sin occurring amongst the membership and do nothing. What do you think is going to happen to that church? What do you think is going to happen to that church year after year after year as sin runs amok in the body and the leaders do nothing? They have to be strong, they have to be faithful, and they have to exercise church discipline. And then lastly, number six, biblically qualified leaders. Biblically qualified leaders. You go to 1 Timothy 3, you can read what are the qualifications. Titus 1, which we've also I looked at one verse in Titus 1 lays out specifically what an elder should be. It's very specific. When we think about this idea of legalism and what we expect of our leaders, it needs to match what the Bible says. What are the qualifications of a leader? We don't get to make those up. We don't get to say, you know, I wish he had a full head of hair. I wish he looked cool. I wish he had nice shiny teeth. We go to the Bible. And we read 1 Timothy 3 and we read Titus 1. 
That's the qualifications of a leader. Can we approve upon God's word? Can, can we add to God's word? It's very clear in those passages. And we cover those often in our membership class and in other classes. Acts 20, 28 reminds us of how these elders are actually appointed. Paul says, be on guard. So he's meeting with the church of Ephesus. And he's telling the elders there, be on guard. Be on guard for yourselves. Make sure you as elders don't wander off from the faith. Don't wander off into strange teaching. And be on guard for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who ultimately makes an elder, a church leader? God does. The Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit appoints leaders. If, if the church is following the word and looking at the leaders according to the biblical qualifications, what you're going to have is the Holy Spirit essentially making them overseers. Now the church recognizes that. In our church, we even pull for feedback when we're bringing up a new elder or deacon. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit. And Paul says the goal is to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So ultimately, it's God who appoints leaders. These are important. You need to know these six. You need to know these six for our church. As you think about what makes a biblical church, you need to know these six as you're visiting other churches, looking maybe for a church in the area or wherever you move someday. What this means is if your church meets these six, you're blessed. And if you've ever had a church shop in America and your church meets these six, you're extremely blessed. I won't go into all the churches that have wandered away on some of these issues, but these are what Scripture says makes up a true biblical church. Well, thirdly, the third main point. Now we're going to go into the issue of worship. How do I know the difference between a preference and a doctrine when it comes to worship, when it comes to music, when it comes to preaching? When it comes to what we just looked at, what is a true church? So number three, the biblical worship of the church. This is helpful. How do we know what's an essential? How do we know what's commanded in Scripture? Let's study it. Just like Christ did not leave us in the dark on when it comes to defining the church, we're not left to come up with our own views on worship as we implement those in the church. The Bible in the New Testament describes exactly what we're to do in worship. There's four elements. Traditionally, there's four elements of worship that are found in Scripture. You must have these four things in your worship service or it's something else and not a worship service. These are commands. These are not suggestions. Paul, Peter, speaking for Jesus, Jesus himself, did not say these things just as an option. Let's check off a couple of these and then... We'll leave it to the leadership or the congregation to decide the rest. There's four elements mentioned in Scripture. First of all, and this is where a lot of legalism can come up in churches, congregational singing. We are commanded to sing as a congregation. Ephesians 5, look at Ephesians 5.19. This is also in Colossians 3.16, but we'll just look here at Ephesians. Ephesians 5.19, turn there and let's look at this. A lot of people don't think music and singing is mentioned in the Bible, but here it is. Paul saying in verse 18, don't get drunk with wine. Don't be filled with things that change your mental state. That's dissipation. That's ungodliness. That's rebellion. Be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does that look like? Here's what it looks like in a church. 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That's what it looks like. Let's break this down. Speaking. In the Bible, people speaking can be a different word for singing. When the angels show up in Luke 2 and they announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, it says they're speaking. But we get the sense that they're singing. So speaking can sometimes stand in for singing in the Bible. And here Paul uses this term speaking because he's focused on how we sing to one another in congregational singing. It's not a show. It's not entertainment. When you go to a concert, you can pick who you want to go see. You can pick your favorite artist. You can say, I want this and I want that. When it comes to the church, there must be congregational singing, Paul says. And he doesn't even leave us to guess at what that looks like. He names three different types of singing, three different types of songs. He says, first of all, psalms. That's the first in his list. This comes from the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. That's a Jewish term, now translated and brought over into Greek. And it originally meant plucking a string instrument. That's what the word psalm means, plucking a string instrument. And so he's saying, sing the psalms. I'm very happy to see that the grace hymnal that we use, they're now coming out with a second volume that's all on singing the psalms. So Lord willing, we'll get that and we'll get Owen up to speed on singing the psalms and we'll learn how to sing some of these songs. And we already do. There are other ones already in our hymn book that we sing, but not as many as we could. Secondly, hymns. Hymns are a song of praise to God. There were hymn writers in ancient times. Even the pagans had their own hymns. These are sacred songs that praise God. In 112 AD, it's mentioned that they're singing hymns as a part of a Christian meeting. And they're singing these hymns to one another. And they even have parts. Parts by the second century where they're singing parts. One side of the church sings to the other. Sometimes you hear legalism that says, Old hymns are the only godly music we should sing in the church. Well, there's psalms, there's hymns, but look what Paul says, spiritual songs as well. What spiritual songs are is a general category for just songs of rejoicing and praising God. And he's giving the idea of what we might call more modern worship music. Now, I have to be careful with that term because it's very broad. We would probably just refer to these as modern hymns. Modern hymns, these are songs written today, songs written in the last decade that are glorifying to God. Spiritual songs. They might even be based on musical scores that are familiar to us. We often sing, All Glory Be to Christ, which is the musical score from Auld Lang Syne. This is music from commonly held musical abilities in our culture that songwriters are writing today. The Gettys, for example. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Modern hymn writers, modern worship songs. Not the kind of false songs that are out there with false teaching and making Jesus your boyfriend kind of songs. Not that. We're talking true worship songs. Paul doesn't mean the sort of songs that are are all about us. He's talking about songs that honor Christ, that honor God. Of course, We receive many godly benefits when we praise God. But what's the final purpose? To worship our Trinitarian God. Speaking of the Gettys, I like what Keith Getty said about singing. He said, worship music is not about a buzz. It's not about an emotional or sentimental experience. It's not about preparing the heart even for a sermon. It's true worship to God. And he's told us these are the categories of music to sing. 
These are the categories of music to sing. And just like people say, only the old hymns are godly, there's a whole movement today that says, none of the old stuff is any good. It all needs to be new. We have the blessing of decades and centuries of Christian music. Why wouldn't we bring that out? I think Be Thou My Vision is the oldest one we sing. Around 800, I believe it was written. Of course, the musical score has been changed over time, but around 800 AD, we're going back and singing godly songs. Now, these songs must be theologically rich. That's obvious in the Bible. They must be theologically rich and biblically accurate. Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And we could say, sing on these things. It's got to be theologically rich. We can't sing a song that's written by a heretical group. We can't sing a song that obviously has bad unbiblical teaching. Also, we need to be able to sing it together. It could be the best song. It could be the most reformed Calvinistic song in the world. But if we can't sing it together, we're not going to sing it in church because it's congregational singing. And you probably have been to churches before where some of the songs no one's singing and they're just listening because they can't keep up. They don't know the song. Maybe it's too new. But often it's because the song's changing all the time. And you don't know what the next line is going to be and when it's going to start. But if you're singing songs that are honoring to God, songs that have the same kind of flow through it, everybody can keep up and sing together. We're not looking to to do what's called the 7-Eleven songs, the same seven words sung 11 times. They're going to be new words, and each line is, is often going to be new. Sometimes we repeat the chorus, but we've got to be able to sing it together. What about instruments? The Church of Christ and others have taught that it is a sin to have instruments. Well, I just read to you that we're to sing psalms. And what does the word psalm mean? Plucking on a stringed instrument. So we know in the Old Testament they had instruments. We know that. It's found all over the Old Testament. Just look at Psalm 150. It talks about wind instruments, a trumpet, a shofar, a pipe, stringed instruments, harp and lyre, percussion instruments, timbrel and cymbals. This psalm teaches that all available instruments were to be used by Israel for praising God. The Levites in the temple in 1 Chronicles 23 speak of instruments and musicians. And Revelation speaks of harps in heaven. God hasn't commanded that we have to use instruments, but he also hasn't said in the New Testament that we cannot use instruments. So it would be legalistic to put a command there where he has not said so. That's probably the biggest one that we're looking at today because of issues of legalism. Uh, The first element, congregational singing. Secondly, reading scripture. Reading scripture. Go to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13. You're, You're going around, you're looking at churches. Maybe you're a member here, but someday you move to be close to your grandkids and you're out looking for a church. You don't go and look for a church that meets all your preferences. You go to scripture and say, what makes a biblical church? What makes a biblical worship service? Reading scripture, 1 Timothy 4, 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus. Ephesus has problems. He sent Timothy there to deal with it. Many of the problems are with the leadership in Ephesus. And he says, make sure to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Just open the Bible and read it to the church. 
Yes, you should be reading individually. We all should. But there ought to be a reading of Scripture. Now, this can look different in different churches. But at the basis of it, the Scripture should be read. Thirdly, preaching. Preaching we've already looked at earlier. The word must be purely preached. But notice the order in the Bible. Go back to 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture first, to exhortation and teaching. You know what that is? Exhortation and teaching? That's preaching. Read the Word, preach the Word. Read the Word, preach the Word, and sing. Those are the first three that we've looked at so far. What's the fourth one? Prayer. 1 Timothy 2.1. 1 Timothy 2.1. He commands prayer. First of all, then I exhort the petitions and prayers and requests and thanksgiving. Be made for all men. The church should pray for all types of people. Kings, leaders, people who are in authority and so on. Now skip down to verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place, every church... To pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The church is to pray. The church is to sing. The church is to preach the word. The church is to read the word. That's the four elements of worship in scripture. Everything else is just preference. It's just preference. It might be the leader's preference. It might be the culture and the area that we live. But everything else after that is just a preference or conviction and is not commanded in scripture that's what a true church is if you find a church that fits a definition of a true church if you find a church that does these four things in worship man plant your life there plant your life there that's a true biblical church and there is more than one true biblical church even in this area i'm not getting at that i'm saying look to the scriptures evaluate it for the right reasons not based on how cool it feels or what they do or how many friends go there, does it match the Bible? And it really saddens me to see people leave a good biblical church because their preferences weren't acknowledged, their preferences weren't elevated like they wanted, and now they drive two, three hours to go to another church, or don't even go to church anymore at all. Look, we all have preferences. We all have things that we would like, things that might make us more comfortable, but when it comes down to it, what does the Bible say? And that's a church, and that's a biblical church. Let's Plant our life there. All right, fourth main point. And this is the last one this morning. How should we then think about preferences in the church? How do we put all this together? How do we think about our convictions, our preferences, make sure that we're not legalistic in the church? First of all, remember the church is not a business marketing to our every desire. I know the modern church has often done that. I know there's books on that. Purpose-driven life, purpose-driven church. Or you send out a survey to the neighborhood, ask what they want, and then you give it to them in church. But look, the church is not a business marketing to whatever we desire. It's not a cruise ship to heaven or a country club. A country club tries to keep the members happy. They want to give the members what they want. So does a cruise ship. It's not a social club. It's not primarily about friendships. I hope you make biblical, godly friendships here. We want that. We see that all the time. But it's not primarily about that. The church does not exist to create your perfect life stage group. You need to be mingling with people who are the little kids that can sometimes be loud up to the oldest saint in the church that can have a lot to teach you about godliness. And it's nothing wrong with wanting to find friends for your kids and home groups that sort of have kids running around. That's fine. 
But don't expect that the church is going to create the perfect life group. You know, 45-year-old men with goatees, balding hair, and a slightly graying, and that's going to be the group for men. That's one person in this room probably. And I'm not going to have much fun by myself. Burger King for decades had this slogan, have it your way, have it your way. That's not the slogan for the church. There's even a church out there, and it's a big church in Europe. They named it You Church. You. Y-O-U Church. The idea is, it's all about you. Have whatever you want, and it is a big show. Look, when I go to H-E-B, and my wife says, you need to get these items, and often it's something to do with chocolate. We have chocolate chips at our house. We have chocolate bars. We have cocoa powder that we get. She would send me with this grocery list. And they're not in the same section. So frustrating. Chocolate chips are on aisle nine. Chocolate bars are on aisle 28. And cocoa powder is on aisle three. And if I was running HEB, I'd put them all right in the same section. And then I wouldn't have to text my wife all over the grocery store asking her, where is the chocolate chips? But you know, they didn't ask me. And I'm not the manager of HEB. And I'm not the CEO of HEB. And I've never once protested HEB because they didn't do what I wanted. And I've never once showed up at the president or CEO's door and thrown a fit because he didn't do it my way. I would like that. But the truth is, maybe they have a good reason for it. Probably to get people walking around buying more product. But they have a reason for it. I don't go to the president. I don't go to the White House, expect to be let in. And I would have some things to say to President Biden that I think he should do. But I don't expect that. Now, if he asks my opinion and I get to vote, I'm going to vote. And if H-E-B does a survey and asks me where to put the chocolate, I'm going to tell him what my thoughts are (laughs) in a humble way. Let's be the same within our church. If the church meets the biblical standards, hey, everybody's different. The church is going to be a little different than the last church. It's okay. You know, we only have H-E-B here. There's nowhere else to go get groceries. And as of right now, there's just not a biblical church setting on every single block of every city in the U.S. Christ is the head of a church. He has told us what we must have. Everything else is a preference. We once had a member tell us, unless you, talking to me, or Frank, start preaching heresy or sin in some major way, I'm staying here no matter what until I die. Secondly, how should we think about this? There are what's called a diaphora that someone must decide on. There's things called a diaphora. A diaphora is a Latin word. It just means the indifferent things. It's an old term in the church. The Puritans called these the circumstances of worship. Where do we meet? What time do we meet? Is it most godly to meet at 1030 or 11 or 1045? You know, the Bible doesn't say. That's just a circumstance. Somebody's got to decide that. The leaders often are the ones who decide that. And it has to be decided, but it's not commanded in Scripture. It's just indifferent. Who chooses the songs? Which specific songs? Of all the godly songs we could sing, which ones are we singing this time? Carpet. Chairs. Should we have chairs or pews? The real godly thing to set in. Somebody's got to decide. Do we have three steps on a stage or just two? Someone's got to decide. What electric company do we go with? What kind of internet company do we go with? What kind of building do we rent? Do we build? Is it time to do that? All of these decisions that just come with leadership. And sometimes it's a specific ministry. You know, what kind of coffee? What time do they start making coffee? 
When do the new books come into the bookstore? There's all kinds of indifferent things you don't think about. And that's fine. We just let those things go because they're not important. But someone must decide on them. And if you work in that ministry, if you serve in that ministry, and you get an opportunity to express your ideas to the ministry leader, amen, do it with a humble heart. Maybe that'll get it implemented. But you know the real test of godliness? The real test of godliness is when you want something to happen and someone says no. How do you respond? That is a real test of godliness. You really believe this would be a great idea. And someone just says, you know, I don't think that's the right time for it. How do you respond? Do you get angry? Do you get upset? Realize there's things that have to be decided upon. And sometimes God hasn't put us in the place to make those decisions. Maybe he will someday. But right now we're not in that place. Romans 14, it says that food is not the issue. Remember in Romans 14, we looked at last week, there's all this arguing about whether to eat meat, whether to drink alcohol. Paul says food's not really the issue here. Food's not good or evil. It's just neutral. It's just a thing. It's indifferent. It's indifferent. No two biblical churches are exactly the same. You can go to any church. You can go to the church that planted us just down the road, and they're going to be a little different. There's a different age demographic there. It looks different in there. It smells different. I mean, everything is different, but not the essentials. You will not go to Curvo Bible Church and find any of the things lacking that I just listed for you. Ultimately, the leaders of the church are going to make some decisions. That's what leaders do. Even in the old confession, the Belgic confession, a reformed confession, says it is useful and beneficial that those who are rulers of the church institute and establish certain ordinances among themselves for maintaining the body of the church. I'm just thankful that someone's doing the different things that need to be done. You know, I remember the day when the church started and I had to do all that stuff and it was not always fun. I'm just thankful that all of you are serving. We had all those people sign up a couple of weeks ago on those whiteboards to serve. Amen. Amen. And if you're responsible and you get to make the decision in that category, then make it. Thirdly, and this is important, factiousness over preferences is a sin. Let's just call it what it is. To faction, to separate out Christians from the body of Christ over a preference is a sin. I think we've established that in the last two sermons. I've already pointed today to the the passage that says, do not go beyond what is written. If we have a preference and we seek to create a group and we seek to influence the elders and make demands and faction off a group of people, that is a sin. Factions can arise over preferences being elevated. They can also arise over doctrinal issues. But usually in churches that are strong in doctrine, strong in preaching, they arise over preferences, over rules, legalism. Here's how serious it is. Titus 3.10 Paul is concerned about factions on the island of Crete there. And he says to Titus, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Why didn't he go all the way through all four steps of church discipline? Why only two steps? Why? Because it's so serious. You cannot wait around. You cannot wait around and let the church just divide and fall apart. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. If you're in a church and it meets the biblical requirements for being a church, and it meets the four elements for worship, for biblical worship, and you create a faction, that is a sin. Paul didn't make any exceptions here. He didn't say, talk about it for 10 years and see what happens. He dealt with it immediately because it's such a serious issue. Fourthly, how should we think about this? 
Remember, there are no perfect churches. There's just no perfect churches. And what is our idea of perfect anyway? It's probably going to change. Your idea of a church and how great it would be to have all these things may change in six months, a year. You might grow and desire these preferences over these preferences. But there are no perfect churches. Every church has strengths and weaknesses. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. They had so many problems. You would be surprised to walk into the church in Corinth and think, is this even a group of Christians? Look at how many problems they have. And he still writes to them as Christians, as a church. Now he says, look, if you don't fix these problems, I'm coming and it's going to be bad for you, he says. Same thing to the Galatians. They've got all this legalism coming into Galatia. And he still says, brothers, you need to correct this. You need to rebuke these false teachers. You need to stop listening to the false teaching. Every church is made up of sinful people who've been saved by grace and they're still growing in godliness. Let's give some grace. Let's give grace to one another. Let's give grace to the leaders. The leaders should give grace to you. Let's give grace. There's going to be difficult times in any relationship. There's going to be difficult times in your marriage and your parenting. There's no perfect marriage. There's no perfect parent. No perfect child. There's no perfect church. We don't throw in the towel, though, when marriage is a challenge. We don't just say, forget about it. We don't cast our little two-year-old out whenever they throw a fit because they're not perfect. There is no church that's going to meet every preference and every thought and every opinion you've ever had about the church. And thank the Lord for that because the minute we created that, we would change our mind and it wouldn't be perfect for us anymore. Here's what Charles Spurgeon had to say, and I'll just conclude with this. He said, give yourself to the church. So he's encouraging people to join a church, his church, because they had a lot of visitors coming. And he says, you that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. He says, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, If I had found one that was perfect, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been perfect church after I had become a member of it. You ever find a perfect church? Don't join it. Because you still have indwelling sin. He goes on to say, still, imperfect as it is, the church is the dearest place on earth to us. The church is not an institution for perfect people, he says, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace who, though they are saved, they're still sinners, and they need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. There is no perfect church. So let's just look for a biblical church. You know, If there's no perfect ones, I would settle for a biblical church. That's what we've tried to do here since we planted seven years ago. It doesn't mean we haven't had challenges. It doesn't mean preferences and convictions haven't changed slightly here and there. What it does mean is that we need to strive, all of us, to be a biblical church. Amen? Amen. Lord, we do pray that you would help us with that. We often don't know the difference between our desires and our heart and what the Bible says. Help us to know the Word so well that we could certainly state whether something is in Scripture or not, that we know that we have discernment, that we have wisdom. I thank you, Lord, that you have persevered and grown our church that although all churches have struggles at times, you have kept us here and continue to grow us. We're so grateful that people are being saved, that people are being sanctified here.
and that we're glorifying you. Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to please you, God. We're not here to please men. We're here to please you. So let us know your word well enough that we might do it. We ask your help in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.